0: Hello and welcome to the Low-Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. But first of all, I have to apologize. Yesterday's podcast got, our last class's podcast got screwed up somehow. So uh, you'll have to reconstruct the last class through notes and things like that. Basically, we covered domestication of animals, um, Increase of the good bits and decrease of the dangerous bits, uh, and so on, etc., etc. I apologize for that. Um, technical difficulties, let's blame it on that. But then again, what isn't nowadays? Okay, um, so like I said, today we're moving on to Mesopotamia, unless there are current events anybody has. Nobody was spurred to greatness by Gens breaking the ice. All right, um, I will be setting a date. Uh, for those to be handed in, the first one at least. Um, It'll probably be coming up here before too long because we're slowly sliding into the last part of the semester. The weather's getting nice, et cetera. Uh, Also, don't forget, the beginning of next class will be taken over by discussing those three different points of view, whether or not sedentism is a net benefit for society and so on. Does everybody have that handout? Yes, okay, you were all here last time. We're only missing the two gentlemen today. Get those names down real briefly. It'll be quicker if I just put a check mark if you're not here. So Jen, Nicole, Denisha, Richard, Brian, Dirk, Kelly, Eric. Okay, Brian. All right. Cool. Uh, so today we're moving on to kind of put a little meat on the bones of the reconstruction of ancient um, diet. Uh, largely, we'll be talking about agriculture uh, when we talk about ancient Mesopotamia. Um, that will be the overall focus, but remember, it is a connection of environment, agriculture, social organization, trade, and resilience. It's kind of a catch all phrase uh, to talk about how well you can weather a storm, either a fi- figurative or a literal storm. Uh, oh, yeah, that's what I want to do. Ryan just came in. So... Is present. All right, almost full strength today. Uh, before we get going on that, though, we should probably introduce ourselves to the area. There are a lot of different um, sub-regions of the Middle East. Uh, I call it Mesopotamia or the greater Mesopotamian area, just kind of as a catch-all, but um, there are some specific regions in here. The Levant, when I say Levant, I'm almost only referring to the modern state of Israel or previous state of Palestine, or the previous state of Judea, or whatever you want to call it, but this area here right along the Mediterranean coast, um, encompassing the Dead Sea. Has anyone ever been to this area? Dead Sea, Israel, that sort of area? It's uh, it's cool. When I was swimming in the Dead Sea, there were F-something or other uh, airplanes flying, like jet fighters flying right over the top of the Dead Sea. So I've seen jet fighters flying below sea level. That was kind of cool. uh, quite the area. I uh, did a lot of hiking, and there's lots. There's been people living here in cities for thousands of, seven or eight thousand years, uh, so there's a lot more stuff just out and about. Every time you're hiking, you find pottery and arrow Oh, it's amazing. Anyway, so that's Levant. Anatolia is largely what we think of as, mm, I guess, eastern Turkey. So uh, up the northwest of the Mediterranean here, here's Cyprus, right? So it's largely this uh, northern Mesopotamian area, greater Mesopotamian area, uh, or eastern Turkey. And then we have Mesopotamia proper, which is the Tigris and Euphrates River basin, right? So this whole area between and around the Tigris and Euphrates rivers is generally referred to as Mesopotamia. In the reading for today, you read about the derivation of Mesopotamia coming from, meaning like the area between the rivers, which is pretty easy to see why it got that name. And then we have uh, Sumer, Sumeria, perhaps you've heard of, ancient Sumeria. This is the southern uh, extent or the 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 bottom of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers where it empties out into the ocean. So just a little bit of a geographical roundabout to let you know where we're at. When I refer to Mesopotamia, I'll be referring to that area unless I say Greater Mesopotamian area just kind of as a shorthand to catch all these areas together. Note, unlike the Maya area, these guys are not as isolated. Uh, We have Egypt down to the southeast we have whatever's going on in Europe at this time, which isn't a whole lot, but eventually we'll get the Romans and Greeks coming in. We have the uh, Persians who become the Iranians uh, over there. We have you know, nomadic step-dwelling uh, horsemen to the north and women and children. Uh, and then to the south, we have uh, more desert dri- uh, desert-dwelling t- tribes. Um, so these folks are interacting with a lot of people around them. So the chronology, again, I'm going to put this up, but I'm not going to ask you really for dates. You've seen on the exam, I don't really ask you too much for dates. Um, So the primary big divisions are the Chalcolithic, the Bronze Age, and the Iron Age. And these are, uh, this is like a techno-chronology. So it's based on the availability of a certain type of technology. Uh, Chalcolithic means like the stone and ceramic period so they have pottery and they've got stone tools and there's the advent of the the bronze age where bronze tools largely these are uh, agricultural implements and weapons and things like that uh, come about although they make much more things out of bronze and then uh, later on the iron age is advented by you guessed it the advent of iron uh, and later steel which is a type of iron Um, you know the Archaeologists have been working in this area for really 150 ish years, late 1800s. People started looking in the Levant for Troy. Schliemann was one of the first. And before this time, they didn't have an idea of how old these things were, but they could certainly see the progression from stone to bronze to iron. And this is a really easy way uh, for archaeologists to put a chronology together. And it was only later, after the uh, dating revolution, of carbon dating, uh, and also uh, here we're going to be dealing with some of the earliest writing, and so we're gonna be able to connect it chronologically from native calendars. And so these dates um, are a combination of, of, um, of calendrical dates and also uh, historical dates and uh, carbon dating and others. Okay, so uh, let's start and go right through these periods. The Chalcolithic, from 6,000 to 3,000 BCE, is split into really two periods. Uh, You might think of the earliest period um, as the very, very beginning of sedentary life, people starting to live in villages, early agricultural villages. um, They're very small, and a lot of the buildings are circular. Uh, Today, when you're out and about and you see a circular building, uh, well, first of all, what kind of buildings are circular? Circular. Oh, sure, stadiums, yeah. What else? Even small buildings or temporary buildings? Gathering, sure. Uh, You probably, some of you, many of you probably own a circular building, perhaps. It's a temporary building, like a tent. uh, Or a teepee, also temporary. Or... um, Sometimes nowadays, a circular building is kind of unusual, right? Most buildings are rectangular. Um, the reason that we use a circular building for tents is because, uh, does anyone know? Oh, well, it's kind of too late to ask, but a circle or a sphere is the most amount of volume you can fit into a set surface area. So uh, when you release liquid in space, it forms a circle because the surface tension draws it down to the least surface area for that volume. And therefore, a tent, a dome tent, is the most efficient space um, that you can enclose with a finite amount of material. That may or may, I doubt they were sitting there when they were like, well, what shape should we build our building? Uh, And well, this is the most efficient shape. And they were scratching algebraic equations in the dirt to figure that out. but circular buildings seem to be the least urban type of building. Um, they're the, some of the earliest buildings. They probably build off of previously mobile tents, yurts, right, things like that. Um, so they're probably, there's probably a relationship between the circular nature and this very beginning of agricultural sedentary buildings, because they're just kind of building permanent tents. That's very likely a possibility of why they had circular. Um, they see the beginning of draft animals, so here we see um, you know, like oxen and donkeys and things like that starting to become important, uh, and this is increases the agricultural efficiency because last time I was talking about how it was humans out scattering seeds and harvesting and over time domesticating wheat and things like that. Well, once you add animals, uh, they can they're a lot stronger than you are, and uh, you know um, starting to Uh, plow and things like that, ups the efficiency of what a single person can do. Uh, We are already at this very early time, 6000 BCE. We're getting irrigation, Um, and they're very simple. This is called a shadoof. Um, Shadoof, S-H-A-D-O-U-F. Shadoof is basically a teeter-totter and on one hand you have weights, and on the other hand, you ha- or on the other end, you have a pot. And you dip the pot into the water, and then you, using the weight, so it's very light, you dip it up into your field, and then it irrigates your field. Um, these have been used for thousands of years. It's probably the first device used to move water uphill. Uh, they become very popular in Egypt. And I don't know what the plural of shadoof is. I asked my friend from Egypt, who's an Egyptologist, and she said, I have no idea. It's just a shadoof. Um, A lot of the buildings at this time were made out of mud brick. Mud brick is similar to adobe, which is basically a clay, sand, and straw mixture that is put into forms and then set out in the sun to dry. They are not usually fired. And you might say, well, I made mud pies and things when I was a kid, and they all disintegrated in the rain. Well, it doesn't rain very much here. And so uh, as long as you have big eaves or some uh, tar, which is endemic to the region, you can get tar bubbling up in, um, in the swamps. Uh, so you can make like an asphalt, which was also invented in the Middle East, uh, covering on your, your building. It's going to run the water off and not touch your walls. And there are mud brick buildings that have lasted for thousands of years if uh, properly protected. There were some fired bricks. They did know about that, but as it's an arid region, there's not a lot of um, wood there to fire these bricks, and so most of them remained unfired. Um, boop, boop, boop. Okay. And we can tell that during the Chalcolithic, people were really uh, trading over large distances because a lot of the pottery and other types of material culture were the same across a large area, which is unlikely to happen if people aren't traveling at least some Second period, the Uruk period, uh, 4200 to uh, 3000 BCE, what's the difference in the buildings now? Before they were round, now they are square. And while round is the most efficient use of a material in terms of space to volume, you can't pack them very well. And you'll see this if you ever, you know, when you go shopping. Sometimes you see containers that are round and there's all this space, right, that's between them, so it's not super efficient. Now, sometimes you see milk containers that are kind of, if you're looking from the top, they're kind of square jugs so they can fit closer together. Even though it's more material, you can fit more together, so trade-off. And at this point, and basically from then on, uh, people living in urban areas made the trade and the transition from round circular village-type structures to rectilinear square rectangular ones. Um, it pretty much stays this way through to today, um, but still made out of wood brick. It's the beginning of literacy. Um, the earliest writing is about uh, 3500 BCE, so about 5,500 years ago. Now, writing across the ancient world starts for a number of different reasons but they can pretty much all be put into two categories, either economic or religious. Those are usually the two reasons that writings start. Not all, but usually, most of them. In this case, we are dealing with economic things. And while it is not as easy to read these early things as it is later, um, I'll zoom in here, Woo! You can see uh, what become our uh, the first instances of numbers that are laid, later used, so we can get at the numbers. And then a lot of it is um, red because we can see how these symbols derive into things later. Um, so for example, barley, right? And this is the amount. Um, this is one of the, the one of the earliest forms of writing we know. Um, it is a Tablet that probably is acting somewhat like a receipt. There are and quickly emerge other symbols, and at the very beginning, these things are clearly pictographic, right? A human being head, a pig, a hand, a day, right? That's a sun setting between a notch and a mountain, uh, orchard, right? So you guys can read, but these are all pretty well. obviously, sorts of words uh, associated with their pictures. Uh, And these very quickly become abstracted into other systems that we'll talk briefly about. Also at this time, we see uh, the emergence of cylinder seals, which has a lot of similar (laughs) cylinder seals. And the idea here is, let's say you have a jar of wine, and you want to save that jar of wine. Um, and you don't want your pesky kids or servants or whatever to get into your wine. So you put a piece of wet clay over the lid, then you take your cylinder seal and you roll it over that clay, and it makes this nice stamped impression. And although it doesn't stop somebody from busting that clay open and getting to your wine or uh, even the door on your house, uh, you can see if the seal has been broken. So it's only a tamper-resistant seal like an envelope or something today. Um, But the fact that we see these so early on suggests the idea of private property, and also you can infer that people are taking your property. So we're already seeing what uh, Marxist archaeologists, and I think just straight up common sense and doesn't have to be political in today's uh, argumentation, but uh, the Some people having stuff and other people not having stuff and some sort of conflict potentially arising from that. Or some people having more than others. Maybe they both have lots of stuff and they want more because, you know, greedy people be greedy or whatever. But we're certainly seeing evidence of some sort of uh, wanting to keep personal property protected. So we're uh, stepping outside already of that egalitarianism that was very likely endemic to the, the very first farmers or the very first... Um, hunter-gatherers. Um, we're also starting to see the emergence of cities. The, um, I guess the type site or the best example of a city at this time is the city of Uruk. Uruk is uh, down here in Sumer right before the Tigris and the Euphrates meet up. Um, It has settlement by the 4000s BC, and it becomes the preeminent city by a 1,000 years later. Um, it has large temples, and they would have been the largest and tallest things around because there were not a lot of hills. And so today, when you look across the Middle Eastern landscape, uh, you see things called tells. If you're looking across the horizon and you see something rise up and go like that and come back down to the, the ground level, that's probably an ancient city. Because remember, they're making mud, things out of mud brick. And so over time, you know, the city starts out, people make their little houses out of mud brick, and over time they do break down, and it rains and whatever, and so people build, you know, so they kind of degrade, and then people build new ones on top, and it's a higgledy piggly. and over time it builds up this giant mound of soil that humans, kind of like a giant reverse anthill that humans have built. And so this ziggurat, Oh, now we're going to test my spelling. I believe it's Z-I-W-G-U-R-A-T, but I'll double-check that in my notes here. Um, ziggurats are uh, square temples, and much like Maya temples, they're not really meant to be burial um, temples like uh, they are in Egypt, where we're going to be going before too long. Um, they were to elevate temples, just like for the Maya, higher above the plane and be a conduit from, you know, our world, the lower world, and then the upper world. They were a, kind of like a, a lightning rod, a celestial or a metaphorical lightning rod. Not that they had lightning rods. Back then, this place probably was struck by lightning whenever they had uh, lightning storms. Anyway, um, this temple was also built up over time, started out small, and people added to it over the years. Boo boo boo. Um, so Uruk was a, one of the first big, large cities, and you can see some of the early uh, temples here uh, in the town, within the town's city wall. It was a walled city, which also suggests some sort of conflict was going on because you're not going to build a, a wall around your city unless it's a levee to keep water out. There's basically two reasons to build a wall around your city, keep water out and keep people out. So uh, they're building a wall, There aren't floods that are going to flood the city, so it almost has to be for uh, keeping the people and the citizens uh, safe. And the neat thing about this city is it's kind of like an eye. There's the pupil, and then there's the iris. And if the city is the pupil, the iris is a series of canals and fields and land around it that supports that city center and they would use the canals to bring in uh, all the extra, excess wheat and barley and other grains they were growing. Um, it's hard to say at this point, but from later cultures, it's very likely that much of this land was owned by the temple or owned by the ruler, and then it was leased out to the peasants, and their rent was given to the temple. And of course, the temple would um, also distribute food in times of famine and things like that. Uh, but it would also be used to hold up the elite members of society. Um, Rulership at this time started out as merit-based, so the first citizen would be elected, right? Uh, But over time, it became hereditary. And then, after becoming hereditary, it became divine. And so you move from somebody who was elected to somebody who passed on, you know, an earthly king who passed on their... Uh, rulership to their son, usually, and then uh, from then on it changed into a deity-reinforced god, who, or uh, you know, perhaps a god-man sort of person ruling your city. So here's the temple precinct at work. All right, that brings us into the Bronze Age. 3,000 to uh, the early Bronze Age, 3,000 to 2,000 BCE. Um, in lower Mesopotamia, which is what we see a map of here, we can see this plethora or this, uh, I don't know, <laughs> cities popping up on the plain like pimples on a teenager. Uh, there's lots of pi- uh, these red dots here on this map. Um, cities and populations have expanded quite, quite a lot. Uh, this is because agriculture has become more sophisticated and able to support more people. <laughs> Um, each one of these red dots represents a city that has a, is the center of an eye, right? So they have a hinterland or a, a space around them that supports them. Usually, uh, these cover 5 to 10 square kilometers and maybe hold about 50,000 people if you count the city and their surrounding. So kind of like a county would probably be a pretty good analogy. Each one of these is a county seat, and then you have the county around it supporting it. Uh, You can see an artist's depiction here of one of these cities. They're starting to become fairly impressive. Another one here with it's sitting on on an island in the middle of a river and then has a wall, so super safe. Um, Here we have some early computers. Look like uh, Macs from the early 2000s that were sent back in time here. Um, But we're certainly, uh, again, getting into this uh, rulers who are Rulers, scribes, and others in this upper echelon who get into uh, a stratified—we're getting into a more stratified society. We're going to see the rest of this banner later on. I just wanted to kind of point that out. And no, these are not computers, and these are not aliens. I don't. Okay, let me rephrase that. I don't. I can't prove they're not computers, other than there's no evidence of computers being found at these sites. So there you go. And this is not, as some would say, a celestial being who's come down and is talking to earth humans. No, this is the ruler, and as the ruler becomes associated with uh, being a god, uh, they are shown the same way they show gods, so this person is not actually three times larger than the people coming up to him. Uh, he is just three times more important, so to say. right? And so this is pretty common across the ancient world to show the more important people is bigger in the picture, just the same that... Uh In photos today of important people, usually the background is fuzzy, and the person who's important is in focus. Similarly here, the larger person is the most important. And again, uh, we have uh, these peasants living around uh, and supporting the towns by growing surplus agriculture.. Mm-mm-mm. So we can see a lot of similar material culture between these towns. And so that means that they're trading. Uh, they're staying in touch. They may, you know, just like different counties, might have uh, baseball teams or high school you know, football teams or whatever that play each other. They, these might have had uh, some sort of equivalent where they would have decent and friendly relations with their neighbors, although there was certainly some um, conflict at this point. Why else would you have city walls? Uh, but for the most part, it seems that they were at, uh, at least trading staples and low-level items quite a lot at this time. Um, what do I have for this writing here? All right, so sorry. Okay, um, writing becomes a lot more mm, prevalent or at least we have a lot more evidence of it. And this is all written on clay tablets with a stylus. A stylus is one of the oldest writing instruments in the world, or I guess the oldest writing instrument in the world. Um, But instead of having paper, um, although they certainly had paper-type things, they didn't really use ink, or at least if they did, it's not stored uh, because it's all rotted away. But these clay tablets were um, flattened, and then a stylus was used to record uh, a lot of, usually, uh, economic information, but also um, we're getting into the point where people would start to be writing letters. And usually these aren't everyday people, these are rulers or perhaps a judge or other sort of administrative person who is scribing out, you know, Farmer A owes Farmer B uh, wheat from this last year's crop or something or other. Um, here we get into. The Akkadian Empire, Um, one of the first and most well-known empires of the ancient world. Um, It's an early Bronze Age empire, and it was started by a guy named Sargon, which sounds like something out of Tolkien, S-A-R-G-O-N is how we render his name. And this is a uh, bronze bust of Sargon, uh, who I think anticipated our current trend in uh, fancy beards. Uh, that's pretty, pretty awesome, although he'd look at home in any coffee shop or something nowadays. Oh, he's even got a man bun. I hadn't noticed that. That's nice. Sargon, the uh, early Bronze Age hipster, um, lived, uh, now these dates are probably uh, fairly approximate, uh, 2334 to 2279. That will not be on the exam. But he was the king of Akkad, uh, which we get the Akkadian Empire from the town of Akkad. Um, where is Akkadia? Uh, Akkad, oh yeah, it's an unknown. Uh, we actually don't know uh, where Akkad was. Um, it was in the Middle East. Uh, here we have an approximate location, but the actual location is not, necessar- not known, at, at least unless it's been recently uncovered. Um, so Sargon conquested this area, um, this area was the heartland of the Akkadian Empire. Um, and so it's the first kind of expansion where a single person or a single town starts to take over. And it's not like they they, they may not have had like garrisons of their people to like quash rebellions. It's likely that each one of these little towns with its hinterland was controlled by a single person or a small cohort of people. And if you can control those people, then you can control the town. So it's very likely that it was kind of a vessel, or a vassal, excuse me, sort of control, where these people out in the hinterland were all controlled by the vassal, and the vassal was controlled uh, by Sargon or the Akkadians uh, who preceded him. Um, mm -hmm. Oddly enough, he took the name... Well, so his title was uh, Sharu Kin, which... If you don't know, your ancient Akkadian, because who does? Uh, literally translates as legitimate king, which kind of begs the question, like George Carlin always said, if you're the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world, what's all the fighting about? Why, does you ha- why do you have to put the name legitimate king in front of your name? Why don't you just say king? If you're really the legitimate king, wouldn't you just say I'm the king? Uh, so there may have been some sort of uh, contention about this, uh, but much of that appears to be lost to history or at least um, to the depth at which we're going to be able to cover it. Um, His life similar is actually really similar to Moses, and it might be that Moses' story kind of um, borrowed uh, heavily from Sargon, uh, even down to uh, Moses being transported in a basket of reeds and being found and all these things. like, happened to Sargon, too. Coincidence? Yeah, maybe not. Um... One uh, positive thing about the Akkadian Empire was it kind of, as we're going to learn later when we talk about Rome and their Pax Romana, or the uh, Peace of Rome, um, within the borders of the Akkadian Empire, he standardized and built roads and encouraged um, trade and fair trade and uh, ease of trade. And one of the other things he did was standardize a series of writing or a system of writing called Akkadian. And so Akkadian is written with, it's called cuneiform. Cuneiform is, oops, I need a pen. It means literally wedge form or wedge shaped. C-U-N-E-I-F-O-R-M, cuneiform. And what would have happened was a stylus, like a round dowel, would have been cut into eighths. And so that kind of pie-shaped wedge would be used to make all these different marks. And the interesting thing here is we're changing from a system that each one of these would have represented a a word, um, you know, nominally like Chinese works, um, here they've changed and now they're representing syllables like Japanese. So this sign means na and this sign means an. This sign means n or sorry ne, ni nu, on uh, and in un, right? So you can write it using syllables. Uh, it's kind of a step closer to alphab- alphabets, uh, but we won't see those until we get to the Phoenicians and the Egyptians, the der- derivation of Egyptians later on. But this language becomes the kind of like the Latin of the Middle East in that it is the first uh, language of empire, and so everybody in these variety of vassal states would have written back to the king using scribes who wrote Akkadian, even if they spoke a different language. It was a lingua franca, so it was the language that everybody, at least on the elite level, probably knew. And then, as things collapse and go down, as they tend to do, this language, just like Latin was in Middle Evil Europe, was retained as kind of a prestige lingua franca that the elites and written uh, people with knowledge of writing still knew. So it uh, becomes one of the most important written languages. Um, It's a Semitic language. It's related to Hebrew and and Arabic. And like I said, it becomes the language of the land for thousands of years. Um, If we want to look at Ur, U-R, that's all it is, Ur. If you look at um, the town of Ur, which would be kind of a, a type site for this time, it's a Sumerian city. Um, and it becomes the later capital of the Akkadian Empire when it rebounds after a minor collapse. Um, it's a major city for 1,700 years from the 2000s to 300s before, uh, BCE. Had a large ziggurat. Hey, I spelled ziggurat right Z I G U R A T. One of the larger ziggurats, and it's, been, um, it's known and has been partially restored. So here's the reconstruction. And here's what's left there today. Well, this, I think, was before the Second Gulf War. It's in Iraq. Um, but it's been reconstructed. Actually, it's interesting. Um, uh, what's his name? Saddam Hussein used a lot of ancient imagery from, uh, more from Babylon, which we'll get to in a little bit. Uh, but he would often juxtapose himself in these like ancient reconstruction uh, paintings and drawings and things. But um, I think part of, I don't, I don't know that this was built by Saddam or reconstructed by uh, Saddam's regime, but it is in uh, present- day Iraq and would have been reconstructed at that time. Again, uh, although they're still using these uh, unfired mud bricks, some on the exterior would have been fired, um, which is why a lot of these things were looted. And people, you know, once this ziggurat falls into disrepair, And you're living on the ruins of society of you know a previously great civilization, you might say. Well, I'm building a new house. I'm not going to make my own mud bricks like a sucker. I'm going to go take them from that thing, and they're fired. And I'm going to make a really awesome, you know, fired brick house to live in. Um, You know, something something to think about in your post-apocalyptic movies or whatever scenarios nowadays, right? What are we going to take all the facing, the the stone facing off of fancy buildings and make our little hovels. Um, We know a lot about the material culture from this time because uh, burials and things have come down to us. Um, And the burials were richly richly furnished. So here we have, oh, nice axe, a whole bunch of uh, both uh, metal and uh, uh, pottery vessels. What just? Anyone have an idea? What? Why would you put a whole bunch of stuff in a grave? Right. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty much the most reasonable explanation, and probably the most likely explanation for why people started uh, leaving a lot of grave goods. There's some idea of an afterlife. And the idea that you can take it with you, right? There's a reason that, uh, you know, there's that saying that we have nowadays. You can't take it with you. Um, And so people don't usually bury a whole bunch of stuff with them. Um, Because you can't take it with you, according to our system of belief, right? And whatever. Whatever system of belief you belong to. Uh, others have different uh, that you can. So here you go. Here's an example. Um, although that doesn't stop people in our society from building themselves very fancy, elaborate tombs. But that's more to make a statement to society that lives on after you rather than about your own afterlife. Um, oh, yeah, let's get to this thing. The, um, this is called the standard of ur Standard of war. What I mean by that is the uh, standard, like a like an image, not anything else. And it has two sides, and it's a mosaic. And it was found and excavated very carefully, leaving all of these mosaic pieces in place. Um, and it shows there's a lot going on here. There's a chariot with donkeys, and notice these little things. These Uh, streamers hanging off the donkeys. I'll come back to those later. And here we have some sort of procession, um, probably a ruler because he's taller, meeting kind of some bedraggled looking people. Um, Down here we have what looks like a war or battle scene. The donkeys are trampling these poor saps underneath. Um, Probably some sort of uh, these guys who are naked. Usually uh, you're not showing up on things like this naked uh, by choice. Usually it depicts uh, people who are captured in war, things like that. Uh, so on this side, we're probably seeing some sort of war and uh, the capitulation of, assumedly, the enemies. Because I don't know why you'd make a really fancy thing like this to show yourself getting your butt kicked in war, because that would be kind of silly. Um, page down. Um, and then on the other side, uh, remember when I showed you that uh, my that pyramid for the Maya with the Maya ruler on top and the nobles and the, you know, the scribes and court people and then the um, craft specialists, people who made um, specialized materials, and then you had merchants and then you had farmers and then you had slaves. Well, here's that, but not artificially drawn by you know, archaeologists. This is a contemporary depiction of at least three levels of society. Where we have the elites on top, um, probably servants here who are bringing uh, looks like some sort of nice little drink uh, to these people sitting on kind of fancy chairs, and I, it looks like their backs are broken because what they're actually doing is sitting and then like leaning. So they have these like really kind of lounger, bar, the barca lounger of the <laughs> of the of the Bronze Age, where they're kind of like laying on a pillow, um, and. And reclining and drinking, and here we have the servants bringing them uh, things to drink, and then we have people who perhaps own large flocks, perhaps merchants or people who are not growing their own food, um, and then here we have peasants and porters um, who are growing their own food, and moving things around the empire. So there was absolutely a it wasn't some, it's not something that we're imposing as as later. Uh, Archaeologists imposing the social stratification on past societies, they thought so too. There's divisions in societies. Now, the exact nature of these things, we don't know as well, because we don't have um, their writing come down to us yet, although that's going to, we will. Ah. Okay. On to the Middle Bronze Age. Middle Bronze Age from about 2000 to uh, 1550 BCE. um, We see some sort of disintegration at this point. And before I said a lot of the sites shared a lot of material culture, well, they kind of break down at this point, and they have a lot more regional um, styles breaking out, which suggests some loss of central power. And then Babylon, which is down here, kind of rises to power in the Middle Bronze Age for the first time. And you might, has anyone ever heard of Hammurabi? Name Hammurabi, ring a bell? See some heads nodding. What, what's he most famous for? Or first laws. The first laws, yeah. Uh, Hammurabi's law code. Um, let me double check his spelling because let me make sure I get his spelling right. Yeah, double M U R. Hammurabi, H-A-M-M-U-R-A-B-I, Hammurabi. Yeah, he's famous for Hammurabi's law code, um, which was not, not the first law code, but really the first one that was written down. And he wrote it on this pillar that was likely uh, displayed in a civic town. And as you can see, it's written in this cuneiform writing. And each one of these little boxes contains a sentence with a law on it. And... Like, a third of it is, like, really boring. Like, if somebody uh, herds your oxen for a day, you owe him this much. If you build a house, uh, you can charge, you know, this much per square unit of measurement and things like that. So it's kind of, like, really boring um, sort of OSHA regulations and things like that. Uh, If you're injured while building a house, the owner owes you three oxen or what, I don't know. Um, those aren't exact quotes, but uh, I do have some exact quotes out of it. Uh, number, um, There are 282 laws. Uh, one of the most famous is an eye for an eye. A lot of people think that comes out of the uh, Judeo-Christian Bible, but it actually uh, comes out of Hammurabi's law quote. And this is interesting because before this time or in some societies, you could be put to death for taking out someone's eye. And Hammurabi wasn't saying you should have a lot of people interpret an eye for an eye as a reason to take vengeance, but it's really a call for moderation, because at this time, it would have been, uh, you take out my eye, I kill you, and that's fine. Well, he's saying, no, that's not fair. If he takes out your eye, you get to lose, you. he loses his eye, right? So it's, it's more um, a fair system rather than an uh, overblown system. Let's see some of the fun laws. Um, if a man's wife be surprised with another man, both shall be tied and th- tied together and thrown in the water, but the husband may pardon his wife if, if he wants. <laughs> so if you catch your wife with another guy, you get to drown them in the river. Hooray. If a man wish to separate from a woman who has borne him children or from his wife who has borne him children, then he shall give that wife her dowry and a part of the usufruct or use of field, garden, and property so that she can rear her children. When she has brought up her children, a portion of all that is given to the children, equal as that of one son, shall be given to her. She may then marry the man of her heart. Uh, If anyone be surprised, after his father with his chief wife. So if you walk in on your parents, um, he shall be driven out of his father's house. So they kick you out of the house for walking in on your parents, which probably, it's all right. Um, And if a son strikes his father, his hand shall be hewn off. So that's a good one. Um, Those are some of the, I guess, more interesting and colorful. There's a lot of uh, laws for the protection of um, women because at this time um, men largely, although it does make some... um, Rules for women owning property that can happen, but it has to be very specific. Um, largely, it's men's family, and then women are um, marry into their husband's family. And so, if the father, if the husband dies or kicks his wife out or is committing adultery, there this has a lot of protections so that woman does not become destitute, being familyless. So there's things like that. It's quite a lot. Um, like I said, 282 laws. Um, Many of these laws probably existed for a while, but this just codifies them. And then when the guy's like, well, I didn't know I had to do that, they can point to the thing and say, it says right here. And then most people would say, well, I can't read. And they're like, okay, well, trust me, it says that. Um, Because we're so different now. Uh, You might have heard of the Hang hang Gardens of Babylon and the Tower of Babel. Um, These things are largely from the later... Uh, city of Babylon, Um, the earlier city of Babylon was a lot smaller and more modest, although still quite the city for its time. The city of Babylon that you've probably heard about, the one where um, the Jews were exiled to and things like that, that was later on, and we'll come back to that. Let's get back down there. Let's see. um, Yeah, it's it's hard to know much about the Bronze Age Babylon because the Iron Age site overlays it. We know that there was a large temple uh, to Marduk, and what else? It was um, oh, between ninety and sorry, between fifty and ninety meters high. So pretty tall. Um, it was a rectangular cities. It had a lot of stru- um, ceremonial structure. One cool thing that we did, uh, we I didn't do anything actually, uh, was this Ishtar Gate. This is in um, this is in Berlin, or at least was last I checked. It was taken out piece by piece and reconstructed in Berlin. At this time, or in the early early 1900s, um, much of the archaeology of the Middle East was run by Germans, and to some extent the French, and to a lesser extent the British. Um, The Germans were very active archaeologists in this area. Um, As colonial powers, they carved up different parts of the world, right? And were in archaeology, they took the Ishtar Gate out and is one of it's a pretty amazing example of uh, bronze age i mean imagine walking into a city where this is the the gate it's pretty spectacular and it adds a lot to you know these rather sterile reconstruction drawings like so if this is the ishtar gate which i'm not sure it is, i think it might be um, that's what it actually looked like that's i mean i don't know any other phrase than it's pretty badass um, with its unicorns and oh it's amazing anyway Oop, oop, oop. Okay, the site of Mari, uh, we'll talk about the site of Mari right here up in the Euphrates River uh, Valley. Uh, this is in modern Syria. Uh, it had the only really important feature of Mari, and here's, a, here's that eye kind of uh, looked down on it, um, and you can see how they dug a canal, and we'll be talking a lot more about canals later. How they diverted the Euphrates to come right through town um, and also into their fields and things like that. Pretty neat. Um, is the palace at Mari. And the only reason Mari even shows up in my kind of highlight reel of Mesopotamia right now is because there's a fire. And this whole building burned down, or at least the wooden roofs and things like that burned down. And there was a storeroom with tablets, with writing on them, like a library, basically. And because it burned, it fired them just like they were in a kiln, and now they're preserved to today. And so a lot of the insights that we have into Bronze Age, um, the Bronze Age Middle East, is from the 20,000 or so. was tons of... Yeah, 20,000 cuneiform tablets, written in Akkadian, which we can read, uh, recorded in this town. Um, I'm going to finish. Let's see. Can we get through late? Mm -hmm. No. It's Yeah, it's 2.20 now, so we'll pick up with the Late Bronze Age next time. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share-Like License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.